And that sinner in the street, that prostitute who gives herself to that vile lifestyle, we can call her to repent. We can say to the, the, the fornicator, the adulterer, come out of that life. Come to Christ. Go to the cross. Be cleansed in the blood. Be pardoned through the triumph and the work of Jesus. And by that means, we can see them delivered from that lifestyle and brought into victory in the life of the church. Now, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, and you will see that the church in Corinth had a testimony of many people who were delivered from vile lifestyles. Welcome to Let the Bible Speak, and we're continuing our message on Thou Shalt Not Commit Adultery, Commitment to Marriage, and the Need for Husbands and Wives to be Faithful One to the Other All Their Days. That's the perfect will of God. But as we know, we live in a sinful world, a world where men are fallen and tempted and where women are even uh, led into places of denial of the true commitment to marriage. And so we need the grace of God, and we need the gospel of the Lord Jesus applied to our lives. And today in the message, we're going to be looking at some of those issues. I trust you'll stay tuned as we go to that. Firstly, a few comments on the book of Romans. We have a question here. What problem is the Apostle Paul addressing in chapter 2 of Romans? Jews tended to consider Gentiles as depraved, and despised by God. Having the law and the light of God in their history, Jews considered themselves to be accepted by God no matter how they lived. They put so much emphasis on their nationality that they neglected the fact that their heritage, rites, and ceremonies were only a benefit to them if they pointed the Jew to the Savior. Paul had to reason with them to see that they were equally condemned with the Gentiles if they were practicing the same things as the Gentiles were guilty of. And right through in chapter 2, uh, Paul has to point this out again and again. For example, verse 11, For there is no respect of persons with God. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter your nationality, the color of your skin. doesn't matter what religious banner you follow. There is no respect of persons with God. We are sinners that need to be saved. And then verse 12 of chapter 2, Paul said, For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. Now that refers to the Jews. They were with the law. They were in the law and they will perish by it if they do not trust in the Savior. And the Gentile who is without law, he will perish without law if he is not born of the Spirit and brought to faith in the Lord Jesus. So the conclusion's the same. All men need a Savior. And so I trust you'll stay tuned as we bring to you the message from the pulpit today of our church, the Free Presbyterian Church here in Cloverdale on Thou shalt not commit adultery. Now I move on that this seventh commandment is based on God's order of marriage at creation. 
at creation. We must always go back to creation. Now, do we need to rehearse how God created Adam, and then he created Eve out of Adam's side? He brought them together. They were man and wife. They were naked but not ashamed. They were brought together to be one flesh. And that's the model. That's the model of true marriage. It is the model of true relationships and there is no other model. There's no other model. One man, one woman. Not polygamy, not one man, one man, not one woman, one woman. One man, one woman. That's the order from the very beginning. Now, the wonderful thing is that that model, one man, one woman, has been the order of God right down through the ages. You think of all the cultures of the world, they understood that was the model. Now, I've been reading back in Genesis chapter 20, whenever you remember how Abraham, he was, his wife was beautiful, and Abram was afraid that Abimelech, the king of Gerar, that he would harm Abraham to get his hands on his wife. And so he told her, say that you are my sister, which was a half lie, still a lie, because there was a, a blood kinship in the family. But when Abimelech found out that Sarah was Abram's wife, he was so thankful, because God awoke him to it, he was so thankful that he had never touched her. And you read Genesis 20, you'll, you'll find that in that culture, which was not Israel, by the way, outside of Israel, there was an acknowledgment, the sacredness of the institution of marriage. And then I think of the pharaohs in Egypt. Now, Egypt was a sinful place. It was pagan, it was idolatrous, but they had marriage. And you'll be familiar with the story of Joseph when he was in Potiphar's house, how Potiphar's wife tempted Joseph to lie with her. And when he wouldn't, she told the lie, and she said to her husband that this servant whom you brought into the home, he mocked me, meaning he made some pass, some pressure on her to do wrong. What did her husband do? Oh, we don't believe in marriage anyway. It's all right. No. Joseph went to jail. He was put in the prison house because that wife belonged to her husband. And in that ungodly culture of Egypt was the institution of marriage imprinted on the warp and woof of society. Uh, I read on, and I find that Pharaoh himself, he found a wife for Joseph, a priest's daughter. And so here's Pharaoh, the most powerful man of Egypt, and he is seeking to find a wife for Joseph. It was built into the culture. Missionaries that have gone around the world, they have discovered that wherever they go, no matter what savagery and cannibalism and wickedness, there is still imprinted into these cultures the principle of 
marriage. Reading of the missionary who went to the New Hebrides, John G. Patton. Amongst the tribal people, there was the awful, awful uh, practice that when a husband died, his wife or wives—I must say there was, there was, there was uh, polygamy practiced in some of those areas—wife or wives were strangled and put into the same grave with her husband. Such was this connection. And it was wrong uh, in, in, the, in the thought in the afterlife that he's going to need the presence of his wife. That idea was wrong. But this marriage connection was so tight. I also remember the, the story of Esther and how when Esther was married to the king and Haman came in and he was soon to be hanged and he was pleading for his wife and he got into the wrong side of, of Esther, the king was filled with wrath. Now that's Babylon, wicked, evil, sinful Babylon. But the institution of marriage was right within it. Now, I'm saying all of this because that institution of marriage goes right back to creation. And wherever the populations of the world spread out, they took with them the principle, the truth of as it was in creation. Now, that's very interesting in light of what Jesus said. In Matthew 19.8, when he was asked about marriage, divorce, and some of those tough questions. He said, well, Moses tolerated this, but from—I'm quoting now the words of the Lord—from the beginning, it was not so. The model of marriage goes right back to Adam and Eve at the beginning, and everything else is wrong. Now you may say, well, what about Abram? He had more than one wife. It was wrong. And he paid the price. He paid the price. What about Solomon? How many wives he had? It was wrong. And he paid the price. It brought an apostasy to his own heart and nation when he went beyond the model that God ordained. And in the New Testament church, it is absolute that God's order is one man, one wife. And you have reintroduced in the New Testament the one flesh principle. I want you to see that in Ephesians 5, verse 31. Ephesians 5, verse 31. And for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and they shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. So here we are, uh, 2,000 years prior to now, uh, 4,000 years after creation, and I'm taking the line that the world is about 6,000 years old. You have close to 2,000 years before the flood, 2,000 years after Noah's flood to the birth of Christ. And at that point, 
Paul the Apostle, he teaches the Christians at Ephesus. He takes them back to the first model, what God did in creation, one flesh between husband and wife. They shall be joined together, and they shall be one flesh. And that's the model. That's the model for the church. That's the model for our homes. That's the model for society. And wherever that is broken, it is wrong, and it needs to be addressed. Now, there's one thing left for us to do here this morning before we wrap up this subject for now, and it's this, to look at the fact that the seventh commandment is based on such moral values that adultery becomes incompatible in the New Testament church. Let me simplify that statement. In the New Testament, adultery cannot be tolerated. The breach of that first model, that marriage bond, one husband, one wife, it cannot be breached. It cannot be tolerated where it is breached. And I want us to read just some very key statements here in the New Testament, and we'll go firstly to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 13. And you will see how in the early church, now when we talk about the early church, we're talking here about the apostolic age, when Paul the apostle was still alive, and he was writing this letter to a church at Corinth, God's people professing Christians in the city of Corinth, which, let me tell you, was no moral place. It was a place of debauchery, where every sin in the book was practiced. And here we see the instruction that is given to these Christians. Now, now think of the situation of the people to whom this is addressed. Corinth was a big city. There were quite a number of people here professing the Lord Jesus. And Paul is writing to them on how Christians should live. And you will see the, 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 the dramatic polar opposite be between the standard of general Corinthian society and the standard of the church. 1 Corinthians 6.13, meats for the belly and the belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Now, the body is not for fornication. And you may be asking, well, what's the difference between fornication and committing adultery? Well, fornication, the Greek word is pornea, from which we would get pornography. And so it is any kind of activity outside the marriage bond. Adultery, of course, is someone who is married and breaks that covenant of marriage with their spouse. Fornication could be sexual practice, pornea, prior to marriage, or in some case with nothing to do with the marriage bond. And here is the apostle saying to these Christians at Corinth, the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord. And here's the first principle. Your body is bought. It is redeemed. It belongs to the Lord. You cannot sell your body to sin willfully and still have it used for the Lord. Verse 14, 
And God hath both raised up the Lord, and will also raise up us by his own power. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two saith he shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. For what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and you're not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So what we learn here is that sinful practice, the wrong use of the body, relationships outside of marriage, is a misuse of the body that's incompatible with the profession of New Testament Christianity. Because when you become a Christian, you profess you belong to Christ, that your body is not your own, that it's redeemed, and that the Lord lives in you. You are the temple, the indwelling, the abode of the Lord. And it's very clear in these verses uh, that no one can freely, willfully, be a fornicator, an adulterer, and have a consistent testimony as a Christian. Now, I regret that I have to preach this kind of stuff. But you know the age in which we're living. You know that church after church has dropped its standard, and it has allowed people to play fast and loose in moral standards— so that the decline has hindered the gospel. And I draw the line, I make the statement that anything outside of marriage is inconsistent with a profession of New Testament Christianity. And when you get into chapter 7, which we're going to read a little bit of now, you will find what to do with the person who does not repent of adultery or fornication? What to do with the person? I don't want to change. I enjoy my sin. I want freedom to have whatever relationships I want. And this is where the church is challenged. This is where the government of the church must stand for biblical truth. This is where we must call men and women to repentance. You'll notice here in chapter 7, 1, he says, Now concerning the things which whereof ye wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise unto the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also, the husband hath not power over his, of his own body, but the wife. 
to fraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. But I speak this by permission and not of commandment. For I would that all men were even as I myself. But every man hath not his proper gift of God, one after this manner, another after that. I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn. And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. But and if she depart, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband. And let not the husband put away his wife. But to the rest speak I not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. And so on. And so we see that Paul takes time in this letter to the Corinthian church to lay it out how professing Christians are to conduct themselves. Now, I'm going to make a comment here that I think may be important, and that is that the apostle does not rule out the possibility of remarriage. We are not saying here, and this passage does not say, that remarriage is always wrong. But faithfulness, fidelity to one wife is God's will. And when we come to God's command for elders and deacons, 1 Timothy chapter 3, that's the standard, the husband of one wife. And that becomes the principle in the New Testament. The elder or deacon is going to be that one who will hold up the standard for Christ. And the line is, he's to be the husband of one wife. There is no room for relationships beyond the marriage bond. And that is the absolute of God's Word. Now, having said all of that, what Paul wrote—and you can read this for yourself in, in Corinthians—what Paul wrote here in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 is in light of a man in the church that would not repent of his adulterous, fornicating practices. And Paul had to write that that man should not be allowed full standing in the church. There should be a way of barring him from all the privileges of the church. Because if that is allowed, and the next one is allowed, and that multiplies in the church, where then is that beautiful picture of Christ and his bride? And so the man who committed fornication, was to be ministered to, called to repentance. He was not to be given the full blessing of the church for his lifestyle, but called to change. 
And the wonderful news is, when you get to 2 Corinthians, that person is reinstated in the church. The call to repentance was right, proper, and it worked. And because he repented of the evil practice and declared it, proved it, then he was brought into fellowship in the church again. You see, the gospel works. You see, there is power in the blood of Jesus. There is victory through the gospel. And for every one of us who have sinned, there is power with God to change. And that sinner in the street, that prostitute who gives herself to that vile lifestyle, we can call her to repent. We can say to the, the, the fornicator, the adulterer, come out of that life. Come to Christ. Go to the cross. Be cleansed in the blood. Be pardoned through the triumph and the work of Jesus. And by that means, we can see them delivered from that lifestyle and brought into victory in the life of the church. Now, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, and you will see that the church in Corinth had a testimony of many people who were delivered from vile lifestyles. 1 Corinthians 6. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, ye are sanctified, ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you. There were many people in the church of Corinth who were singing out of the hymn book. They were living a life of prayer. They were witnessing in Jesus' name, and they had been in that place of wicked sin, adultery, sodomy, vileness. But in the New Testament church at Corinth, the gospel triumphed in the lives of men and women. And if this comes close to where you're at today, let me tell you, there's power in the blood of Christ to change you. Not only to cancel the past, but to give you power for the future. Because it was Jesus who, was, who said to the woman taken in adultery, Go, sin no more. Sin no more. That's what the gospel does. That's what the gospel does. And when we change the standard, when we fail to preach the seventh commandment, we fail to preach the cross and expand what it can do to call men and women to purity, to godliness, back to the marriage bond, to the blessing that God has put upon it. And what blessing is in store for the repentant soul. I trust I have covered this fairly and honestly and biblically. Next week we'll get to the, the duties of keeping the seventh commandment and the boundaries. The duties and the boundaries. That's the message next week. I trust the Lord will help us and make us a church where we know the power and the victory of the cross in us. This is Pastor Ian Golliher. Call me, please, at 604-897-2040.
For all the details of our broadcasts across Canada, go to ltbs.ca. This broadcast comes to you today from the Free Presbyterian Church in Cloverdale, located at 18790 58th Avenue, Surrey, at the corner of 188th Street and 58th Avenue. Our website is cloverdalefpc.ca, and there you can find gospel articles links to our sermons, a gospel booklet called A New Beginning, and a link to watch our services online. You're warmly invited to attend any of our Sunday services at 10.30am and 6pm to meet with us as we worship God and to hear the preaching of His precious Word. We also meet for Bible study and prayer every Wednesday evening at 7.30pm. Our Sunday School for Children and Adult Bible Class meet every Lord's Day at 9.30am from September to June. You can contact us at 604-567-1091. Alternatively, you can email me at pastor.cloverdalefpc at gmail.com. Again, for all this information, please visit our website at cloverdalefpc.ca. Our burden is that you will hear and understand the gospel and that will bring you to know the Lord Jesus Christ and his great salvation. This is Pastor Andrew Fitton. Thank you for listening today. And be sure to listen Monday to Friday at 5 a.m. and 5 p.m. and on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. for our one-hour church service as we worship the Lord through the ministry of his word. Music